In what we are doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply, what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary and voluntary. We don't know the contrast organic Welcome back, Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. This is the Progressive Radio Network. Program airs every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time, 2 p.m. on the East Coast. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. And yes, we have a program today, Memorial Day 2016. Plenty to talk about. It's hard to know... Where to begin, really? This is now counting the, oh my goodness, the 10th Memorial Day that I will be uh, alive for. I won't say celebrating. There's nothing to celebrate today. We'll get into that. In 10 years since I've been out of the Marine Corps. So, you know, Memorial Days while you're in the Marine Corps, I think, there's not too much reflection happening, at least for me. You know, of course, there's the occasional symbolic gesture and so forth, but there's not an ongoing reflective process, let's say. You know, to be honest, at that point, you're really just happy to go home, maybe for the weekend, or go out for the weekend. And yes, of course, you're going to remember people that you served with who lost their lives. But when you're that young, for me, 19, 20, 21 years old, it's hard, I think, to put things in perspective properly. And that perspective changes with time, no doubt, right? There's... The way that you thought about things, major things, so death, war, peace, life, love, family, friendship, those things change drastically with time. They have to. So Memorial Day for me has changed drastically with time. Not only what I'm doing on that day, today, but also what I've done in the past, what Memorial Day meant in the past, what it means today, what I think it will mean moving forward. Everyone has childhood memories of Memorial Day. It's sort of how society and culture is orientated, at least for the majority of Americans. It's orientated around holidays. You know, your social life is orientated around the weekend for those who even have a weekend. 
you know, many people work on the weekend. But our lives are orientated around those things because most people have to work in many hours throughout the week, slaving away for a boss or a company that could give a crap about them. Of course, many of them know that. So then Friday or Saturday comes along and it's time to party. And people enjoy that time. Now, of course, on this day, we should also remember the reason we have weekends, the reason that people enjoy, well, at least some people, as these rights are being chipped away by corporate influence and capitalist interests. Remember a time when we enjoyed eight-hour workdays, and why is that? Because of organized labor. Which brings us to something else we should remember on Memorial Day. The Memorial Day Massacre during the Little Steel Strike of 1937. I believe six to eight people were killed. I don't have the information in front of me. I apologize. Several people injured. A friend of ours, a friend of the sort of tight-knit crew, the family, the extended family, who recently passed away, his name was Stevie Borzon. His father actually tells a story in a book written and published by, I think, Robert Stanley, another one of my dad's friends from back in the neighborhood. So Stevie Borzon's father had a gun stuck in his mouth by a Chicago police officer asking him whether or not he's a communist. So fighting for workers' rights in 1937, gunned down by the police, would be no different today, by the way. See, this is something that everyone needs to keep in mind as well. And this is why there's only a couple options in terms of organizing with the police. There are some people who believe that portions of police could be organized around progressive causes. There's others who say, hell no. There's no way in hell that we will either work with the police or we will attempt to organize the police. And many people think that the prospect of organizing police officers around progressive issues or getting them to take the side of the working class people in those kinds of disputes. You know, this is, see, this is the kind of, the, the reason why we're allowed to even have those kind of conversations, the reason why People are able to, say, be a member of a union and simultaneously be, you know, extremely close to police officers. Many people grow up in the same neighborhoods. This is true even within my own family. But see, this is where the rubber meets the road in terms of how you believe about certain issues. 
you know, how, how strong are your values, in other words. So if one of my best friends or my brother or my sister or a family member were one of the police officers who gunned down workers fighting for workers' rights and didn't apologize for it and didn't speak the truth about what that meant, then that person has to be, I think, criticized. You can't you can't say, well, you know, it it was my brother who did it, so my you know, I've got to cut him some slack. No. No. See, this is the problem. This is how police officers and military personnel get away with craziness. This is how. This is how they get away with murder. Because people don't want to speak up and speak the truth. People would rather hold on to those individual subjective relationships while avoiding at all costs a larger truth or stepping out of bounds and maybe having to challenge those individuals to get them to see maybe a larger truth or to get them to take the correct and just steps towards rectifying previous injustices. That's something we should think about. Why on Memorial Day? Well, I can tell you as well as any other veteran who has chosen to come home and not, uh, let's say, fall in line. You know, I refuse to attend the parades or the funerals or the bikes, you know, the bike, what do they call those? What are those called? The pub crawls, you know, are like these, I don't know what the hell, there could be like a, you know, people biking somewhere on motorcycles or even on bicycles, you know, or uh, there was just recently this weekend a 22K march because 22 veterans kill themselves every day. Okay, well, you know, all these charity events, all of this, these symbolic actions, this is all great. Guess what? Here's the, if we don't have, and this is the same for personal charities. I just recently told a friend of mine, we're talking about local people, you know, having to pay medical bills that they can't afford so people will throw benefits. Well, the benefits are great. You know, no one's saying that people shouldn't throw benefits for people in their neighborhood or anyone doesn't have to be in your neighborhood. People halfway across the world who need uh, money and materials immediately. But that's never going to solve the problem. That's putting a bucket under a leaky faucet. And that's what people have been doing in this country for decades. For decades. If you want to stop having health benefits or benefits for people who can't afford the outrageous prices for medical care in this country, you would be better off spending your time fighting for a single-payer system and getting all of the hundreds or thousands of people that attend those benefits in the small towns scattered throughout America to stop voting for people at the, this is at the very least, 
to stop voting for people who are taking away those medical benefits, making them more expensive, or prohibiting people from expanding medical benefits. That makes more sense. Because the civic world, the activist world, has not yet developed institutions that are capable of providing the same care as the state. The state apparatus, meaning the federal government, the state government, your local government, etc. Thinking of all three as, say, one entity or thinking of these multiple entities as, say, one system, the government, able to provide these services. Okay, so getting back to not wanting to celebrate Memorial Day in the traditional manner. You know, as a child, I don't think many people think about these things. How we didn't think about this or how this wasn't slammed into my head as a child, I will never know. Vietnam was the greatest catastrophe, the greatest war crime of the 20th century, bar none. How did we not learn about that? We have to all ask ourselves. I mean, the cynical side of us could say, well, that's because all the institutions are corrupt. That's because the government doesn't want us to know. That's because the media doesn't want us to know. Okay, well, how did that happen? You know, just a cynical response to that isn't going to cut it. People in this country still grow up with the idea that this is the greatest country in the world, and there is absolutely no evidence to prove that to be true. Now, other people would argue, well, it's a very subjective interpretation. What is the greatest? Well, let's, you know, if you use, uh, say, standard measures or standard measurements, access to health care, your ability to live a decent and healthy life, access to clean food and water, rates of birth defects, poverty rates, rates of violence, rates of suicide, rates of drug addiction, I'm sorry, my friends, but we are at the bottom of the best categories and at the top of the worst categories when compared to every single industrialized nation in the world. So how in the hell could someone be proud of that? I mean, this is what's always amazed me about this country. Just blindly, people were, are willing to throw the flag on, wear an American flag shirt, an American flag bandana, baseball hat, slap a bumper sticker on the back of their car. What the hell does that flag mean? It's an embarrassment. I mean, when I'm overseas, one of the first things people say to me is, why are there so many American flags everywhere? What in the hell are people proud of? Are they proud of the fact that our minimum wage is $7.25 an hour? Are they proud of the fact that we have 5% of the world's population, but we use 33% of the world's resources? Are they proud of the fact that we have 5% of the world's population, but we use 75% of the world's pharmaceutical drugs? Are they proud of the fact that we have 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the world's prisoners? Are they proud of the fact that the last two major international war crimes have been committed by the United States? i.e. the war in Iraq and the war in Vietnam, and then we can add to that the destruction and devastation of Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, Syria, Palestine, Yemen, 
and we can go on and on. What are people proud of? Are people proud of the fact that the richest one-tenth of one percent runs every major institution in this country? Please, I'm begging for some American progressive left-wing. I don't, well, I know my left-wing friends uh, are on the same page. I know my friends who wouldn't consider themselves left-wing but are thinking and critical people are on the same page. But, you know, there's I, I hear all this this bullshit from progressives, so-called progressives, or progressives. I mean, see, this is part of the problem with this terminology as well. We need to constantly be challenging what these things mean. Because I'm hearing plenty of people say that they're progressive, yet I hear them say very little about U.S. foreign policy, U.S. empire, imperialism, nationalism. And this is one of the biggest problems with our unions. So tying together this nationalist fervor of Memorial Day, this symbolic BS, with the fact that less than 7% of the private sector in the United States is unionized. Okay, where's the connection there? Well, the, the unions in this country not only practice a conservative form of unionism, business unionism, some would say maybe a corporatized form of unionism, but as my friend Kim Sipes points out, they've also been complicit in some of the worst U.S. foreign policy uh, coups, assassinations that people can think of. So this is, this is the sort of darker side of American unionism. And one of the problems has been nationalism. And you still see it today with the unions, with all this bullshit about buy America first. This is the, this is the wrong rallying cry, my union friends. If you think for a second that the average American making $7.25 an hour is going to start going out of their way to buy American products. And what products are we talking about? So just because they're made in America, they're okay? Or should they be made in America with living wages no matter what? Or should they be made in America with what kind of green products that we want them made in, in a more ecologically friendly way? You know, it, not to mention, of course, if we took – you know, speaking with a friend of mine who's an economist and he's telling me this is especially crazy because who knows what would happen if indeed people in the United States only started to buy American products. You know, when this is this, this is the same issue with the, uh, you know, the steel workers calling for tariffs on the steel. Well, what do you think the United States is doing? You think China just learned China is the first country in the world who's subsidizing uh, one of their major industries and undercutting markets over the all over the world? Get real. Talk to farmers in Latin America and in North Northern Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa, who have been completely pushed out of the market because of U.S. Ag agricultural products that are subsidized. Take a look in the mirror, America, before we start pointing our fingers and looking at everyone else. This is one of the, also one of the biggest problems with this country. Everybody always it's always somebody else. 
oh, the steel mills are failing. Well, it's the Chinese steel. It's the Chinese steel. This is a reactionary position. It's a reactionary position you should expect from conservatives and people who watch Fox News. But, see, the same nationalist bullshit is being peddled on MSNBC. See, this is the problem. People want to believe in something that doesn't exist. There never was a quote-unquote United States of America. When? Before the Civil War? Leading up to the Civil War? During the Civil War? After the Civil War? Is there a quote-unquote United States of America right now? You people are out of your minds. There's not even within these states, I feel, no, there's very uh, little solidarity or community or sense of community. What in the world do people in Hammond, Indiana have in common with people in Evansville, Indiana on a day-to-day -day basis? Is there, is there, are their lives similar? Are their interests similar? Is the culture similar? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But don't tell me that you automatically have some kind of kinship with people in Evansville or you people in New York City with people living in rural Oklahoma. Around what set of values and principles? Freedom? I mean, this is, this, this is really what we need to go into here is some of Eric Fromm's work on freedom. This silly notion that people are free. Or free from or free to do what? Those are two different kinds of freedoms as well. So you have to step back and think about these things before we just start blurting them out. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of confusion in this country. And that's because a lot of us were militarized as youth. Video games, TV shows, movies that glorified killing, glorified military adventures, glorified warfare. So those bored teens eventually join the military because they want to become lean and green. You know. And then, and then what? Where are they sent? Korea, Vietnam, to overthrow democratically elected governments around the world, Iran, Chile. We could go down the lit Greece, Venezuela. Sending young men and women all over the world today. And as we mentioned earlier in the program, the war that explains everything about that you need to know about this country, Vietnam. Four million, according to the military historian Nick Turish, using the latest data. Over four million Vietnamese dead because of the war in Vietnam. Another illegal and completely insane invasion and occupation. And the people in Vietnam are still suffering for it. But there will be no true Memorial Day for them. Hell, we barely have a Memorial Day in this country for the people who wore the American uniform. But what did people really do in this country? I'm still interested to find out from people who supposedly give a shit. What exactly are people doing? What exactly are people sacrificing? 
for the veterans of this country? How much are people made to actually think about these things? Post a little something on Facebook? Slap a sticker on your car? Donate $5 when you're in line at Walmart for the Wounded Warrior Project? Yeah, that's the extent of America's solidarity for the men and women who put on the uniform to serve the empire. And oh, my friends, none of this is new. But Vince, what are you talking about? This is this is crazy talk, an empire. What I mean, an empire? Well, I mean, we can go back to one of the most well-decorated Marines of all time. I think he's the second highest decorated Marine of all time, Smedley Butler. General Smedley Butler, who wrote a book called War is a Racket. I suggest people check it out. Printed in the 1930s. Let me read you a quote from Smedley Butler that will give this conversation a little context. Quote, I spent 33 years and four months in active duty military service, and during that period, I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer a gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico, and especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of a half-dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua, for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1902 through 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. I helped make Honduras right for the American fruit companies in 1903. In China, in 1927, I helped see to it that Standard Oil went on its way unmolested. Looking back on it, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best Capone could do was operate his racket in three city districts. I operated my racket on three continents. Unquote. Smedley Butler from the anti-war classic by one of America's most decorated Marines. War is a racket. My friends, that's what you need to know and that's what we need to talk about. None of this is new. People tried to pretend with the war in Iraq as though these things were new. My God, Bush and Cheney and the whole gang in the media lied to us. Now, was it a little more sophisticated lie? I think so. Were they using the fears of terrorism in the aftermath of 9-11 to push their agenda? Yes, of course. Was any of this new? Maybe the methods and the techniques that they were using were new. Okay, Fox News wasn't around during the Vietnam era. So sure, some of the methods, some of the techniques to propagandize the public were new. But the fundamentals remain the same. As the military historian Andrew Basevich reminds us, there is much more continuity between each American presidency and the next 
and those before it, then there are differences. The continuity is there. In order to run for president of the United States, and this goes for the Bernie, for Bernie Sanders and for Bernie Sanders supporters as well, in order to run for president of the United States under the current structures as they stand, you still have to hold the belief that the United States is the most important country in the world, number one, and number two, that we have a special place in the world, and that special place in the world hence means that we can do what we want when we want, because what we say goes. Now you tell me where in Bernie's speeches or where in the ideology of Bernie's followers and supporters, and I use a distinction there on purpose, you tell me where they're challenging American militarism. You tell me where they're challenging American foreign policy on a fundamental level. Simply saying in a debate, as Bernie did, that he's against regime change doesn't mean, as the journalist Jeremy Scahill recently pointed out on Amy Goodman's program, that Bernie hasn't supported regime change in the past. He just so happened to support regime change at times when it was pretty popular. And to simply say, well, he voted against the war in Iraq, well, that's great. The vast majority of people around the globe, except in this country, were opposed to the initial invasion of Iraq and the occupation of Iraq in 2003. So to use that as some kind of a bar to measure one's foreign policy chops, I'm sorry. I don't give the person much credit. You know, there were teenagers who were marching in the street all over the world leading up to the war in Iraq. Teenagers. High school students who understood that the war in Iraq was a sham. Okay. So those things have to be challenged. And see, the other part to this, and this is the frustrating part, I think, about the Sanders campaign. And a big part of this is because there is no anti-war movement in this country. Now, that's probably another entire program's worth of reflections and thoughts and conversations and questions and so on. But because there isn't a significant anti-war movement in this country, you know, Bernie has no reason to make an anti-war platform part of his major speeches or part of his major platform as a candidate. That sentiment publicly simply isn't there. So we've moved forward on many different issues in the last 15 years. I think most Americans are more aware that they're being spied on than they were 15 years ago, and they are indeed being spied on more than they were. I think most Americans are starting to understand that the political system is corrupt and inherently rigged against them. I think a lot of Americans are starting to understand that there's gross levels of economic, and I would call, call it sort of socio-political inequalities. That's inequality not only in wealth and, and incomes and so forth, but an inequality in political power and political access to the most powerful institutions that run our daily lives. There's a deficit across the board with regard to inequality. Now, that being said, I think more and more people are starting to understand these things. 
And without question, the majority of Americans, individually speaking, are less sexist, less racist, less homophobic than they were 40, 50 years ago. The society as a whole, the culture as a whole in the United States is less willing and less likely to listen to people who espouse those types of beliefs. Now, the contradiction there, of course, is that those who do remain have become even louder and in some ways more powerful. Having someone like Donald Trump as a figurehead for your movement, giving you a voice, a, leg a so-called legitimate voice in the popular discourse, this is troubling, no doubt. But the decades-long trend is, is clear. But there's other contradictions. So while America has progressed on many social issues, things have regressed with regard to the economy, with regard to militarism, war, and empire. We could add surveillance into that rubric. And also with regard to the environment. Those are three major pillars of society, and they are coming undone at the seams. So the next candidate that comes along for president, if somebody does, because this is how this seems to work here in this country. Now, there's other problems with this. We need not just candidates to run national elections. We need alternative politics. This is just in the electoral sphere. We need alternative political parties. That, to me, is one of the first things we need because there's people who want to reform the Democratic Party and I'm sorry but I don't I mean number one the amount of time that it's going to take to in order to do so I think would be a, a, a gross waste of many many people's time that's number one it would simply take too long for the sort of challenges we're facing in the near term number two this isn't the Republican Party so people always use the Tea Party as an example well the people who wanted to reform the Republican Party wanted to make that party an even more right-wing party. So a quasi-libertarian ideology is just great and fine and dandy for corporate business interests. They can work with that ideology. The Koch brothers can work with Ron Paul and Rand Paul. This is no big deal. Simply using them as a cover this sort of grass, or I'm sorry, sort of astroturf movement funded primarily by people with lots and lots of money who are getting people with hardly any money and hardly any education to run around in the streets and protest and hold up don't tread on me flags in Washington, D.C. and, you know, perform goofy protests like uh, this bozo, Adam Kokesh, who brought a gun to the Capitol building to show that he was, uh, what, expressing his Second Amendment rights. I mean, th these people can be used like tools by the people who are in power. Their ideology, their worldview is right in line with people like the Koch brothers. So the Tea Party was a benefit to big business. Hence, it was allowed to take place. If people think for a second that a bunch of progressives or left-wing activists are going to be able to hijack the Democratic Party and all, all of the sudden turn it into a people's party when it has always been a corporate party to a greater or lesser degree. 
Now, were the Democrats of the 1970s better than the Democrats of uh, 2016? Yes, of course. But the Democrats of the 1970s weren't anything to write home about. It's just that the context has changed. Things have gotten so bad in this country that now someone like Barack Obama looks like a decent president. Because what, what are the other options? Someone who ran to the right of him and someone who is to the right of him from the same party in Hillary Clinton, another neoliberal, just slightly more hawkish and slightly more corporatized. And then to the right, a, a sort of neo-fascist in Donald Trump. So yeah, the 1970s probably look pretty decent to people who can remember that period. I don't. You know, I was born in 1984. Jesus. So, you know, 1984 till now, things haven't looked too pretty. My first recollection of politics was the L.A. riots, so I knew that there were still racial problems in the country. The Gulf War, so I knew that, you know, there were wars that were going to happen. And uh, our president getting a blowjob. That was the big news when I was a teenager. And then everything changed when I was a senior in high school and a couple planes hit the buildings in New York. Then everything changed. And most of the people I know since then who were 17, 18 when that happened have grown up, myself included, in a country that's increasingly full of shit. So you can't tell me someone who grew up as, a, you know, my first political awakening at 17 years old was 9-11. In that term, that day in that term, 9-11 is just thrown around and bandied about these days. But I, th I think it's hard for people to remember what that was like back then. But I think people should do themselves a favor and take a deep breath, close their eyes, and try and remember what it was like. People were flying flags everywhere. People rallied around the president. People were bloodthirsty. Because the automatic reaction is what people have been propagandized to react to. And that's with violence. So, of course, somebody bombs our buildings. Well, we're not going to let that stand. We'll go. We're going to come back and we'll, we'll turn them into the Stone Age. And how's that worked out for everybody? So let's take the morality out of it. Though I think it would be really important for most Americans to think about the morality of these issues because it's so... So, so seldomly is it brought up in conversation. You know, it's constantly dollars and cents. Does the war make sense? Is it good for American interests? Can we afford it? Those questions are secondary to, is this war right or wrong? And how, so if we take the morality out of the picture, how has it worked out for America since the wars and since 9-11? Has it worked out for the unions? Are the unions in better shape in 2016 than they were in 2001? Has it worked out for teachers? Are teachers in better shape? Are pu is public education in better shape? Or is the overall education system in better shape in 2016 than it was in 2001? How about our civil liberties? Are our civil liberties uh, any strong? Are they stronger today in 2016 than they were in 2001? And what else has happened since 2001? Oh, that's right. There was a financial collapse. 
and there has also been the greatest concentration of wealth and power in the history of humanity into the top one-tenth of one percent in this country, the most powerful military empire and the richest and most wealthy nation to have ever existed in the history of the planet. And we have to constantly remind ourselves of this and remind ourselves of what kind of responsibility comes with living in the most wealthy and powerful military empire the planet has ever seen. There's a tremendous amount of responsibility. Tremendous amount. More Americans would understand this if they could spend more time overseas. So we have to challenge this nationalism. Must be challenged, this American nationalism. It lies at the core of what is fundamentally wrong with everything in this nation is this rabid nationalism and this absurd, utterly absurd notion of American exceptionalism. There is nothing exceptional about this country. The only thing exceptional about this country has been the level of brutality it has been willing to use against indigenous people, black people, Latinos, and the millions and millions of people overseas, Vietnamese, Cambodians, Syrians, Afghans, Iraqis, Somalis, that we've been willing to destroy their lives in the pursuit of big business interests. So let's be honest about it. Everybody knows, as the old Leonard Cohen song goes, everybody knows and everybody wants a long stem rose. Everybody knows. If you talk to the average person, if they're not all jacked up on, on ideology, they'll say, yeah, these wars are BS. Well, if the wars are BS, then what does that tell you about your country? If, if the country that you love so much or you profess to love so much continually sends young men and women to die for unjust and illegal wars, what does that say about your beloved country? And in challenging nationalism, we will have to challenge the empire. That's a thousand military bases spread throughout the world, close to a trillion, some argue over a trillion dollars spent every year maintaining the U.S. empire. We spend virtually what the rest of the world spends combined on their militaries, on our military. Do people feel safer in 2016 than they did in 2001? I don't think so. The numbers don't show it. The numbers show that Americans, especially after the attacks in Paris and San Bernardino, just as likely to launch another war, just as likely to allow another violent response to a violent action just as likely to fear a terrorism attack as they were in 2001. And the majority of Democrats and Republicans following the bombings in Paris and the shootings in San Bernardino supported Donald Trump's idea that we should ban Muslims from coming to the country. The majority of both Democrats and Republicans you see, these are the this is the issue, the fundamental issue that cuts across all political lines 
It's not inequality. It's not racism. It's not sexism. It's not ecological devastation. It's the U.S. empire and nationalism. And you see just how many of your progressive friends are waving an American flag around this weekend as you would the, the right-wing jagoff who lives down the block. Just as many people. And the way to challenge this is not simply by criticizing it, but by offering an alternative. And what has been the long-standing left-wing, not progressive, not liberal, surely not liberal, because liberalism is inherently tied to nationalism. You can't be a nationalist without being a liberal, and you can't be a liberal without being a nationalist. But internationalism, the idea that no man, woman, child, or otherwise, creature, environment, ecosystem, is more or less precious than anyone who comes from the United States of America. An American child's life is no more valuable than a German child's life, which is no more valuable than an Iraqi child's life, that's no more valuable than an Afghan child's life, that's no more valuable than an Australian child's life. That's the point. Until we can get people there, we're going to continue to have war and we're going to continue to have violence. The bigger picture is that this war and violence is going to take place in the context of a collapsing global economy, an economy particularly in the United States that is no longer capable of providing a decent living for the vast majority of its inhabitants. And the overarching context in all of it, with, with all of that included is climate change. So if indeed, as a recent report the UN released that was cited on I believe progressive.org. I could look that up nonetheless. I, I talk about it. Or I could reference it again next week. But hundreds of millions of climate refugees. There will be hundreds of millions of climate refugees in the coming decades. Now, how are people going to respond to that if they revert to tribal behavior? How are people going to respond to that if they revert to this tribalistic thinking? oh, they're from this area, or they don't speak my language, or they don't come from these artificially created boundaries, invisible lines that don't exist and never existed and won't exist in the future. Those people don't come from this area, so how are we going to deal with that? Or what's going to happen when Americans are refugees? I'm assuming the average American would want to go to a region, a country, an area where people would have open arms for them if they could no longer live in their homes because of ecological devastation and climate change. You see, folks, we're moving into a different context where these old institutions, they're no longer just unjust. They're no longer just something to move past. They're no longer simply something to criticize and, and, and hopefully develop alternatives just for the sake of doing it because it's the right thing to do or because it's the sort of critical thing to do. These institutions can simply no longer deal with what's coming on the horizon. These ways of thinking, nationalism, 
putting America first. There's no putting America first. And there will be no economic justice or ecological justice or any other sort of justice in this country, I guarantee you that, if we don't collapse the U.S. empire. If the empire is not broken down, if military spending isn't cut by at least 95%, if the bases and the aircraft carriers and the missiles and the helicopters and the nuclear bombs and the fighter jets and the tanks and the armored vehicles and the millions of soldiers aren't brought home and demobilized, I guarantee you nothing progressive will happen in the long term in this country and indeed the world. And that's why the responsibility is so big because what happens in the United States will have reverberations throughout the world. And people around the world who have been ravaged by U.S. empire and U.S. capitalism are hoping praying and wishing that at the very least we can change the system in this country to allow them to live decent lives. So then the people here are not only challenged to, to challenge these institutions and to change the power dynamics in this country, but they're also challenged to do so because people around the world are requiring it. No longer sending young peasants to kill peasants. That's what's going on in this country. Sending monkeys to kill monkeys. Completely crazy. And it's completely crazy for people to hold these contradictory views about how much they love the United States, yet couldn't describe to me in more than three paragraphs what it is they love so much about the United States. We have to challenge these things, folks. On this Memorial Day, that's your challenge. The challenge is not only to criticize these institutions, to criticize these policies, to think about militarism and empire and nationalism, to think about how those things are tied to racism and patriarchy and climate change and so forth. But the challenge is to build a movement capable of changing these institutions and these relationships. That's a conversation we will have in the future, no doubt. So, again, on this Memorial Day, ask questions, put the flags away, stop the patriotic BS, and ask the serious questions. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network. This is Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You can listen to this program every Monday at 2 p.m. East Coast time, 1 p.m. in Chicago. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary and voluntary. We don't know the contrast organic. Organic.